0: Church of the City, we've been studying the seven churches of Revelation during our reunions on Sunday morning. Well, in order to help us go a little bit deeper in this series, I reached out to someone I met recently by the name of George Sinclair, and he has become uh, very much a hero at a distance, and I think you'll understand why after listening to this conversation. I hope you be blessed, and as always, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out after listening. You are loved. Well, I guess it would be about a month. Uh, I met George Sinclair in Whistler. We were both there, invited to be part of a conference retreat with other like minded pastors from across Canada who are caring about gospel renewal, church planting, and leadership development. And I didn't get a first initial introduction to George, like one on one. George kind of came to the surface because he was sharing his opinion based upon the discussions that we were having as a group. And in the midst of that, George said, I'm an Anglican, but I'm a J.I. Packer Anglican. And uh, if you're familiar with J.I. Packer wrote a inc- number of books, but Incredible Man of God, uh, Knowing knowing God is, is one of probably his most uh, popular, although, George, you'd maybe share there's some other ones there. But George, after meeting you then, we then had further conversation, got to travel from Whistler back to Vancouver together, got to hear a little bit more about your life and story. I'm always trying to learn from people that are, are further ahead than me in, in life and in ministry. And uh, you shared that you're in your mid-60s, been at this a while. And so I just love the opportunity today to be able to chat with you and, and hoping this can then be an encouragement. But rather than me continuing to to blabber on here, sharing more about you, would you just Take some time here and share with us a little bit about yourself. You can even talk a little bit maybe about your family, uh, where you serve, and and something that, you know, maybe even God's teaching you in this season as you're pastoring.
1: Well, first of all, you have a very, very uh, polite way of saying old by saying further (laughs) along. So uh, you obviously uh, are very good with words. Uh, (laughs) I'm not old. I'm just further along. Yeah. uh, I don't know what to say. To be, I, so first of all, I'm not a cradle Anglican. Um, I stumbled into Anglicanism when I was uh, 24. Hmm. I'd been a Christian for about uh, eight, uh, eight years and quite active Christian when I stumbled into Anglicanism. Uh, and after I stumbled into Anglicanism, uh, which is a whole other story, uh, probably not of interest to your listeners, um, I felt the call towards uh the ordained ministry uh very shortly after i became a christian at 16 actually i started a christian club in my high school mm. and i also re- helped uh, within about uh, three months of being a christian i helped to restart the youth group in the church that i attended so i'd, I'd had leadership roles for quite a few years um anyway i i ended up deciding that i was called into the anglican church which was a bit confusing because i knew that it was a fundamentally liberal denomination in practice, but not on paper. Okay. So uh, that when I was getting ordained in good conscience, I could promise to uphold the doctrine and practice of the Anglican Church of Canada. I could do that in in fundamentally good conscience, because there was quite a gap between what was written down on paper and uh, the practice of uh, most of the churches uh, around me. So, I served uh, three years in a suburban church, uh, a large by Anglican standards uh, in Ottawa a suburban church. And then I spent seven and a half years approximately out looking after four little tiny Anglican congregations in rural Ontario. Uh, about uh, if you were driving from Ottawa to Algonquin Park uh, and you left Ottawa about an hour and a half after leaving Ottawa, you would passed through that part of Ontario where I was responsible for these four little churches.
2: Hmm.
1: And um, two of the little churches would always meet under the same roof at uh, about nine. The largest of the four small churches had their service at 11. And um, the really tiny little church would meet twice a month and that would be in the afternoon.
2: Hmm. And
1: uh, now the, and it's all different now after, because I've been away. And then I I got uh, called God, I think, to a a very troubled church in the urban core of Ottawa, and uh, that's where I've been for quite a few years now. I'm married uh, to Louise. Uh, We have nine children. This is where the gasp comes. I have nine (laughs) children. Uh, Seven of them are married, so I have seven sons and daughters-in-law and uh, in March, uh, we, will have, we will welcome our 21st grandchild. Wow. Actually, so uh, I used to occasionally be called a Reverend Quiverful, of course, uh, <laughs> from that old King James version of the psalm. Yeah. So um, I don't know, that's a, a very quick thing about me, having served in three different type of uh, ministry contexts. Yeah. So, well, the, the, the building that we uh, used to own, uh, sort of in a sense, the center of the church uh, is about a three or four minute walk from the University of Ottawa, for those who know Ottawa, and about a 10 or 12 minute walk to the Parliament buildings. Uh, okay. And we're also about a four or five minute walk from pre-COVID, the main bar uh, bar entertainment area of Ottawa, that, mm-hmm. uh, known as the market. So okay. that sort of gives people who know Ottawa at all, that would give them a bit of a sense of where where the, the church building was.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm interested, George, if you could sort of expand on, there are a couple of things that sort of stood out to me there as it relates to your ministry experience and your call. One was your initial introduction to Anglicanism, which you said on paper was a more conservative yet in practice, it was a bit more liberal. And then you also said you went to sort of a, a was it a struggling church or a, a church in the urban core It was sort of in a maybe a transitional period. So could you just describe then a little bit about those those early days transitioning to this church, some of the uh, and some of the changes that you started to become aware of more broadly in the denomination and then if you could actually like how how long ago was was this now.
1: Okay, I have to be careful because I don't want to bore your listeners. Uh, So, And I'll try to speak in shorter things. You should feel free to interrupt me if I'm not quite uh, (laughs) scratching scratching where you itch, Mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. Um, The Anglican Church of Canada, on paper, you had to uphold the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the 1962 Book of Common Prayer, which um, was a sort of a a modified in a bit of an Anglo-Catholic direction. From uh, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which is almost completely unchanged from 1552, so basically uh, the English Reformation happens in the, uh, the mid 1500s, um, and uh, um, it's uh, basically, in fact, you know, it used to be when people talked about talked talk about Anglicanism as a middle way. People now usually talk about it as a middle way between uh, product, even Protestantism and Catholicism or evangelicalism and Catholicism, but that's actually not true. The Anglican middle way was a middle way between Lutheranism and Calvinism. Oh. And if you actually look at the, at the 1552 prayer book and, the, 19, and the, the 1662 book of Common Prayer, you'll see that it's mainly a, on the reform side of the playing field, but you see that it was trying to balance in lots of ways those two main, the principle, in a sense, Reformation movements that were, had been going on in Europe, because uh, England sort of comes into it a little bit late uh, in terms of the Reformation. And um, the Anglican Church of Canada, though, in practice was fundamentally liberal. It had been liberal at least since the 50s, when liberal theology clearly overwhelmed almost all of the seminaries. Uh, and at that point in time, they got rid of, this is really boring. You want to cut this out, you can. Uh, they got rid of the 39 articles as, a, as something that ministers had to uphold. But it's still fundamentally orthodox. Uh, but in practice, it wasn't. It was, um, from a worship point of view, very conservative still. Okay. Um, with You know, very hymn-driven, organ-driven, um, very uh, conservative that way. But l- theologically, if you listen to the sermons, they would be quite liberal. Um,
0: Sorry, I just want to ask, like, what do you mean by that, by, by liberal? Just because I know that for some people, yeah. liberal can mean different things. So as you surveyed, what would you mean by liberal in practice versus you know, music was still quite conservative?
1: Yeah, so in terms of uh, basically theological liberalism uh, is really an accommodation. Basically, what you could really think of it is, as is um, you know, and some of your hearers have heard of syncretism. Syncretism is where you combine, to try to combine two types of beliefs. Mm. If you read the New Testament, uh, but the Bible all the way through, uh, the, 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 the Lord is a jealous Lord. He has no rival. Mm. Uh, you can't, uh, Paul would be very clear that if you combine the law, uh, following the law with grace, uh, you've destroyed grace. There is no grace. So you mm. can't mix them. It's not Jesus and, it's just Jesus. Uh, there's not, you know, he doesn't need improvement <laughs> it is and so uh, basically the characteristic of liberalism is that uh, the basically no miracles happened
2: mm-hmm. so if
1: you see a miracle story in the new testament well we know that that didn't happen we know that mi- miracles don't happen so you need to reinterpret that text of scripture either you either disregard the text of scripture altogether or you reinterpret it in some way that it's telling you something but the miracle isn't there uh, you, you don't have authoritative moral teaching uh, because you would you would subscribe to the idea that uh, they would maybe cover it with this idea that you have to balance reason uh, and tradition in the Bible and they somehow all have to be balanced. But in effect, what that means is the the tradition ends up just meaning the way that the church whatever the church happens to say, and reason just sort of really means secular reason. So if if your culture is saying that um, you know, that uh, you can be a, a man trapped in a woman's body, and uh, well, that and that's just reason. So you need to interpret the Bible in light of these types of things. So that's what theological liberalism is.
2: Okay. And
1: in practice, and most times in, the, in what happens in uh, most Anglican churches back then, I've, I've been out of the denomination now since 2008, is that most of the time it just means be nice. Hmm. So you, you can actually go to an Anglican service and think, oh, well, that wasn't very liberal. But it's, uh, Jesus is an example, not a savior. Um, you, you follow his moral teachings, uh, qu- appropriately qualified. Uh, they rarely come out and just say that Jesus was wrong. Uh, but it's really all about, you just have to be a good person and a nice person uh, in a way that's very Canadian and that doesn't really offend anybody. Anybody. And uh, so as the culture, of course, moves more and more in a, in a direction which is very post-Christendom, then the Anglican church continues just to move in that post-Christendom direction, just baptizing whatever is going on in the, in the intellectual culture, the elite culture, the, right. pop, you know, the elite culture, and they just sort of, at the end of the day, baptize it. There's no type of sense that the Bible you know, is an authoritative word. You, you could go to a lot of Anglican churches, and they might, they might say lots of very positive things about Jesus, by the way. But you'd never hear that he died on the cross for your sins. You wouldn't hear a very clear statement that he rose from the dead. If you studied this this text of the feeding of the 5,000, it would be something along how this is a matter of, this is a a biblical text about the importance of food banks. Uh, Or or just sharing or something like that, or being generous. Not that that the, the same God who in the the six days of creation created fish is now actually standing and creating fish like you don't get that that robust type of appreciation of of the bible right and so that would be so that that type of teaching can go along very easily with um with being very very you know conservative so to speak or traditional in terms of the what happens on a in a worship service you can have all of the but actually, I'll tell you a very funny story. This, is a, this maybe would help everybody better than, than anything else. So back when we were um, in the midst of all of our struggles, uh, I would regularly get people from the University of Ottawa, Carleton, come and ask to interview me, either journalism students or other people doing social research. So there's this young one, one young woman doing a master's degree in something or other, uh, sociology or something. And she picked the uh, we, we were the the leader in terms of upholding biblical orthodoxy, uh, the conservative church. Right. And she approached us and the the leading church, which would have been considered very, very liberal, like the really pro-gay church. So she asked if if she could come and observe both of our services and if I would make it uh, possible for her to interview, I think it was—I can't remember—it was ten or twenty people from my church, and she was going to order, or, uh, interview ten or twenty. She was going to do a study about all of that. Okay, so she goes to um, the, the the liberal church, and the liberal church has all this. Uh, it's all choir-driven. They, they have processions. It's all in robes. Uh, the service is very solemn. Uh, basically, the congregation doesn't sing. All the music is just the canter and the choir and it's all old 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 music Mm. and she went to that on one Sunday and then she said to herself and her friends if that's the (laughs) the liberal church (laughs) the conservative church is going to be terrible (laughs) like that was terrible this one's (laughs) going to even be worse so she comes to our service and I'm not wearing any robes we have a band uh the whole service is up on the screen uh, the music sounds like the type of music that she listens to. <laughs> and wow. it's, it's young people and there's no processions in, and it completely blows her mind. Right. right? Like she doesn't understand how, these, how that would work, right? How we're the conservative church. Mm. But we're conservative in terms of, of, of believing the Bible. And because we believe the Bible, we can be flexible about all of that. To that other type yeah. of stuff. I, I'm taking you on a different path. I don't know if no, you, no, take I, you I, back I, on whatever I, path you're on. No, that's so. very,
0: <laughs> very, very helpful. I suppose what I wanna ask then is at what point, I mean, you came in, I don't know if you would say that you had trepidation coming in. You had confidence that on paper things were fine. You recognized in practice that things were moving in a direction that you didn't agree with. So maybe you came in with trepidation, but at what point did you decide okay, because I know the story and you'll tell it. but at what point did you decide, I don't think that I can continue uh, right. this, this way? And then how did you also, uh, I also know the other part of your story, but how did you decide or how did you begin to prepare your church for, for what would become your eventual uh,
1: <clears throat> departure from from that, that tribe? Okay, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, So eight days after I get ordained in in Anglicanism, what happens is um, there's a type of ordinate, sort of like it's a two-stage ordination process, and they technically call it being a deacon, and then you're made a presbyter or a priest. So it's a two-stage process. So I I get ordained in the first stage of the process on on a Wednesday night, and uh, eight days later, we have this In in Anglicanism, you have these uh, regional meetings called synods that sort of uh, it's for teaching and business meetings and they pass budgets and policies and all that stuff. And I go to my first one and your listeners can Google Bishop John uh, John Spong.
2: Hmm.
1: Bishop John Spong is probably not known very much anymore. He's been dead a few years, but he was a, a leading, leading, leading theological liberal debunker of all things to do with uh, biblical orthodoxy. Uh, the resurrection didn't happen. The virgin birth didn't happen. Uh, sexual ethics are completely wrong. Uh, you know, miracles don't happen. Most things in the New Testament didn't happen. You, all of those types of things. Yeah. Uh, you might have even talked about how, you know, the, uh, the incarnation is actually sort of the rape of Mary, like all of that type of really wow. outrageous, you know, type of stuff. And he was the guest speaker at the first synod that I went to. Mm-hmm. And so I go there on a Thursday night. I've only been ordained like I was a week, like seven days, eight days previous, I'm ordained.
2: Wow, uh, wow. I go to
1: the synod on the Thursday night. He speaks like that, he gets a standing ovation. Hmm. I was the only person in the room that I could see who didn't didn't clap and didn't stand he gets a standing ovation Uh, all of the members from my congregation are there they're all looking at me as to why on earth I didn't clap or difference you know and anyway I go home to Louise that night and say Louise I think we've made the biggest mistake in our life (laughs) this denomination is like way 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 more liberal uh than I had uh you know realized. Anyway, for a variety of reasons, we, you know I stick it on, you know, we we keep on. I I'm able to do my own, you know, ministry and stuff like that. There's whole other stories about that. And
2: mm-hmm. it took
1: me a while to try to disentangle the liberalism from the the other types of stuff, but I you know never compromised in terms of what I pr- preached and taught and all of that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fast forwarded I come to this, I'm sort of imposed, that's a whole other story. I'm imposed on this church in the urban core of Ottawa. I'm the first uh, evangelical minister in the church's history. Um, uh, And I come into the church and I know that it's a a pond to fish in, not a boat to fish from. Hmm. Uh, That the the, most of the people in the church needed to come to a saving faith in Jesus. And by God's providence, there was a small number of people there who, um, you know, believed in Jesus in a saving way. And I just begin this, uh, slow but uh, painful uh, many times very very painful process of wow. just you preach the bible and you defend the faith and you pray like crazy hmm. and uh, when you can you uh, you make leadership you make leadership you know shifts um you know but uh, so anyway in some ways uh, i say to people i came there in 95 but in some ways i've actually pastored about four churches since i came there in 95 because wow. the the way the congregation had to keep changing Mm
2: -hmm. so
1: you know uh, for about the the next five six seven years there's this slow process of me preaching Uh, some people leave in anger Uh, other people become converted from the church wow Um, uh, people leave new people come Uh, this the church starts to slowly change and when I get a chance to make leadership changes, I make the leadership change in the right direction uh, when I can. That was one of the things I, I realized that I had to do. I'd been mentored by a, an older fellow that, and that was very helpful information. I used my authority where I could to, to fill the places because you wanted to have a, a situation where you could have people who believed, and <laughs> had a saving faith in Jesus who are all in the, the positions of leadership and power in the church, uh, mm-hmm. just as you ultimately want to have people in the, the you want to have people saved in the congregation wow. so uh, then in two thousand and nineteen ninety eight, 1998 there's this um, seismic um, there's this explosion in the Anglican church Anglican world because the, the issue you know this is just hitting evangelical churches now but when I, I was going through school in 1980 uh, 82 to 85 in the Anglican world the the blessing of same-sex marriages was already being talked about right so what's going on right now in, in a lot of uh, the, the evangelical world, soon to be ex-evangelical world, it's just really 30 years plus behind what went on in Anglicanism. Wow. And, um, and I can see a lot of that, the same types of moves that are trying to be made by people to, to try to talk about things. They're all things that went through <clears throat> Anglicanism. So I was already very familiar with that. This was going on. In fact, as part of my ministry training uh, in the marriage counseling section, and this would be 1983, there was a gay couple who came mm. for marriage counseling.
2: Mm. And
1: uh, now I, I went to, there's a whole other story because I went to a very, very liberal seminary. That's a whole other story as to how that happened. But, uh, but this was very clear that it was appropriate to give marriage counseling to a gay couple. This is 1983. Like this is, uh, this is when these issues are really but most lay people wouldn't have been necessarily as aware of it as, the, as clergy were. But anyway, in 1998, the World Anglican Communion overwhelmingly adopts a very, very, very biblically faithful view on, on sexuality. Very overwhelmingly. Uh, the, when all the, uh, the bishops, Anglican bishops from the world gather, over 85% of them, or 89% of them, voted in a motion, which is very, very orthodox, Hmm. But it immediately created a shock in the first world Anglicanism, uh, which was basically all theologically liberal. And they immediately began to push back against it and to uh, to create a different reality. And so in 19. 19- can, can
0: you just clarify for our listeners by first world? Do you mean those in North America would that or what would what do you mean by first world? Anglicanism? Oh, that's
1: a great question. Sorry. First world. Uh, first world is, uh, you know, Europe, Western Europe. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, North America. Uh, that's, that's primarily what people mean when they refer to, and Japan, uh, I right. they mean the first world. But it's, um, so it's the industrialized democratic uh, world, at least right. that would have meant. Verses,
0: versus the, you're talking about the gathering of all the Anglican bishops from across the world, very international gathering, but the, yeah. the first world, the European-esque worlds, the progressive worlds are saying, oh, we disagree with our international
1: comrades on this. I keep forgetting them I'm old. So it back uh, for those- oh, No, George, you're, you're further along. Just further along. So <laughs> it, used to be, uh, it used to be that there were three worlds. The first world was this world of um, uh, democracy and capitalism. The second world was the communist bloc. USSR still existed. Uh, the third world is sort of the rest. And at the yeah. time, most of them were quite poor. Uh, there's been a, a great rise, so to speak. If you look at Korea, India, many places, uh, there's been great wealth, Chile, uh, uh, large parts of Brazil. Uh, so I'm using old-fashioned language. Um, yeah, Anglicanism is a world movement. One of the things that people don't realize is that if, this, this, if, you were to, to, if you were to have somebody go back in time and zip around the world, counting bums and pews around the world, hmm. there were more people worshipping in an Anglican church in Kenya Uh, This past, just yesterday, or we're we're doing this interview on a Monday, Uh, just yesterday, there were more people in Kenya uh, worshipping in an Anglican church than all of England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe put together. Wow, praise God. Just just in Kenya. You could say the same thing for Uganda, you could say the same thing for Nigeria. And these places are all very, very conservative evangelical um, movements that are growing like crazy. Hmm. And, uh, and so uh, that's a bit more of it. Any, anyway, basically uh, in 1999, uh, what we would refer to roughly as the, the diocese centered around Vancouver voted that uh, the uh, church could start blessing, blessing same-sex unions. And that created a big shock world in the Anglican world, uh, which is still tumbling down. And uh, that happened, the, the, uh, the bishop withheld his assent Uh, It happened again in 2000, then he asked for a year of discussion, uh, and then in 2002, there was a vote, and uh, he gave his assent, and so that diocese proceeded to uh, allow clergy to do the blessing of same-sex unions, because it was before same-sex marriages were legal. So as this was all going on, uh, my wife and I had had to talk about it, had a bit of a gut check, so we made the decision, uh, to my mind, an easy decision. That once something like this is, is, uh, is allowed by our diocese or by the national church, then I can no longer on paper affirm the doctrine and practice of the Anglican Church of Canada. There's been a, a change in the paper, so I can no longer affirm it. Hmm. Uh, there had been all sorts of other things that were liberal. The new hymn book was tr- atrocious. Some of the new liturgies were atrocious. Uh, those were all voluntary, optional things. Right. Um, churches do marriages. Like marriage is something you can't get out of doing and um, weddings and all. And uh, of course, marriage is connected to marriage counseling. It's connected to
2: yeah,
1: on sexuality. Uh, you can't avoid it. So we came to the private decision that if the our diocese or if the national church uh, made that decision to bless same-sex unions, that we would have to leave. Um, and we were fine with that. I had no other... Uh, Uh, Back at the time, we weren't sure if we, who knows, we might end up being uh, Presbyterians or Mm -hmm. Free Methodists or uh, Christian Missionary Alliance or something. Who knows where we'd end up moving, right? Right. So then, uh, just then, just, I mean, very briefly, I, after praying about it a lot, I decided uh, in our leadership structure at the time, there's something called the corporation. We are the ones who, uh, in a sense, legally are the trustees for the property. And then there's something called council. And so I told the trustees or the corporation, I wanted to let them know that uh, because this I knew was coming to the Diocese of Ottawa and would come to the National Church, that the day that it happened, I wouldn't cause a fuss in the church, uh, but I wanted them to know that within six to nine months, I'd be gone. Hmm. But I wouldn't cause a fuss. Okay. I would just leave quietly. But the, the day it happened, I would start looking for other work hmm. So uh, when I told the corporation that they their response was now, you remember, I had made the point of putting evangelicals in these positions of power. Right? right. Yeah. They said, well, don't go by yourself, George. We'll all leave with you. Wow. OK, so that that meant that at the level of the corporation, we were now able to have confidential discussions about what to do as the crisis continued to build in the Anglican Church of Canada. Right, And then we came to the point where we realized that the entire, most of the the whole council was also evangelical. So we told the council what our decision was. And their response to a single person was, don't go, we'll go with you. Wow. So at that point in time, at the other principal decision-making thing, we're able to discuss strategy, which we would leave unminuted uh, in terms of how to deal with things. And then anyway, it culminates with you know, other types of things. You keep preaching the Bible and lots of people leaving and mad. And, you know, we, we did other types of things, which I think were very helpful, It was a way to, fl- to both solidify the congregation, but to flush out other issues is that we had ver- a variety, at our annual meetings, we had a variety of motions over the years upholding uh, uh, the biblical sexual morality, um, con- you know, um, expressing our, our condemnation of some of the decisions that were being made.
2: Hmm. And those
1: congregational votes, um, in, in, what we had to do is we had to walk towards conflict. What we had to do is prayerfully, in a sense, you have to walk towards it in a way which is, at its heart is ironic and peaceable, but is also going to be very, very clear. Hmm. Clarity is the Christian's friend. Wow. Uh, ambiguity is the devil's friend. Hmm. clarity is that is the christian's friend because of course uh, the truth is clear i mean it's not clear to us but the problem the reason truth isn't always clear to us isn't that the problem is with the truth it's with our minds wow um, you know our minds wow. complicate matters and have idols right but the truth is clear and jesus is the truth and so the the we need to try to be clear so we would have these clear statements about different sexual morality things that would be debated some people would be angry and leave. Uh, but at the end of the day, the people who stayed, there was a a growing type of strength. And that went on that our process of doing that went from about 2001 to 2007 in the fall of 2007, the diocese of Ottawa passed a motion, uh, making ours the second diocese in the country that would bless same sex unions and same sex marriages. And, um, it's really funny, i had been very public at a national level and in the press about our church's view, and as I'm driving home from it with a layperson, he said, George, you do no more interviews. Hmm. Uh, from now on, between now, and the, that was the end of October, and a vote at the end of February, you just keep your head down, and we prepare to leave. Wow. And, um, and, and what he's
0: referencing there is that your church would prepare to leave your denomination.
1: Yes, we yeah. would prepare to leave our denomination, yes. Um, and uh, we'd, we'd taken a whole pile of other little steps leading up to it because we knew this vote was happening and everything like that to try to separate ourselves and we and the other thing is is about uh, two years about a year and a half or two years before this we secretly got a lawyer hmm. and I, I should mention actually uh the September so the about six weeks before this uh, synod vote in 2007 the new bishop of Ottawa tried to fire me hmm. and uh by the providence of God, I was able to get out of that without being fired. Wow. And then about three weeks after the, uh, the vote of synod, I was actually called officially into the bishop's office. And that only happens on a Saturday afternoon if he's going to fire you.
2: Hmm.
1: And at that point in time, uh, that's when uh, he discovered that I'd had a lawyer. For, uh, the church and I had had a lawyer for about a year and a half. Because uh, he made a very big strategic mistake. And he also made a mistake that could have gotten the lawyer in big trouble. But I, I came into the meeting. First of all, I had two lay people with me so that I'd have witnesses from my church. Yeah. And the second, but the snake he had is he had, he had the diocesan chancellor with him. And the chancellor of the diocese has to be a lawyer. So I came into the room and said, my lawyer told me to never be in the room with you when you have a lawyer and I don't. So mm. here's my lawyer's card. I'm going to leave. And you can call the lawyer up and set up a time for us to meet. <laughs> and they were all very shocked that I had a lawyer. Yeah. And, uh, but up until then, uh, we'd, we'd had a lawyer giving us some some private advice. We were prepared because we saw it coming. So, so then, uh, you know, we have to, in our system, we had a whole other thing. We... Um, Our annual meeting was the 16th of February. Uh, We'd had lawyers craft a motion. At the time we were trying to craft a motion that would maximize the possibility for us to keep our building and property and would maximize a few other types of legal protections. So we, um, and so it was all part of that. Uh, I began the meeting. First of all, the the Bishop tried to intervene by sending his representative. And uh, we were prepared for that. Uh, When he tried to come into the, we had a person waiting and they didn't let him in the room, didn't let him in the building. Mm. And uh, he, uh, I went and spoke to him and I spoke to him and the, the fellow said the Bishop has the right to be part of meeting. He's part of every meeting in the diocese. I said, that's actually not what the, the laws of the church say. And uh, he, said they, he said, no, that's what they say. I said, no, I've checked with a lawyer. That's not what they say.
2: And I said to him,
1: uh, listen, if it turns out that I'm wrong, and you can show me on Monday that I'm wrong. I'll apologize. I'll, publish, I'll apologize publicly. Now, of course, it turned out, I mean, I knew I was right because our lawyers had actually looked at what the laws were and uh, at both provincial laws and uh, the laws of the church called canons or bylaws. Anyway, we ended up, uh, I introduced the motion at the meeting. I, I said that because this motion, which was about a page long, had been crafted by a team of lawyers, we were not going to allow any amendments.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, people had to either vote for it or against it. And then for for legal reasons at the time, I gave up the chair of the the meeting to another person and I left the room. And that was partially to protect me and the church in case it was claimed that I was trying to intimidate the congregation into the vote. So I went to a a local Starbucks and had a very anxious hour, (laughs) Mm -hmm. hour and a half uh, Mm -hmm. until I got the, the, the text or the phone call that the vote had passed. 98%. (laughs) 98%. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so but actually, it, was, it was 87 to 1 or something like that. Right. Only one person yeah. voted against. And when we made the vote, uh, we warned in the congregation before the vote that we weren't sure if it meant losing the building. So they had to be prepared to vote to leave the, the denomination, uh, even so if that, it meant that, losing everything.
0: And, and sorry to interrupt, but just for the listeners, that would be a, a uniqueness of... Um, or, or something they might not understand is that when you are being prepared to leave the denomination, you are also potentially giving up your building. And, and so fast forward with us, so you're saying 87 to one, 87 of your members said, we are fine. If that is the case, right. hold on to biblical orthodoxy. Right. Um. So yeah. So fast forward, what, what then happened? Uh, what was the result of, of, of this vote and this motion?
1: So what happened is, of course, uh, I mean, there's lots of little, uh, you know, itsy bitsy details of it. You know, we were called into the bishop, I was called into the bishop's office on Monday. Uh, The legal threats began immediately. uh, And we began, by coincidence, out of, you know, like a hundred churches, 110, 120 churches in Ottawa, uh, most of your listeners know that the Anglican Church of Canada is fundamentally liberal. Uh, There was uh, one little church uh, two little churches in the country where they, the minister and the congregation, the majority of the congregation just left. Or maybe about half the congregation just left. Um, mm-hmm. About three years later, there was a small town called Pembroke. Mm-hmm. And the minister there knew that he wouldn't carry a vote. And uh, so he and his, about 60% of the congregation just left. Right. In the building. But in Ottawa, so that's all. And then there was us and, uh, us and one other church in Ottawa. Wow. That they left about seven months after we did. Uh, and certainly with the legal threats begin. Um, you know, there's a long process. Eventually, uh, we um, they sue us. Uh, they sue me and the two other trustees personally. Uh, part of the thing the Anglican Church of Canada did was to intimidate uh, churches, is they didn't sue the, the church, uh, but they sued the trustees as particular individuals. Uh, wow. That would mean that, in fact, you... You know, you risk losing your house and everything like that if if uh, you go to court and you lose, or you'd have to argue the case as to why they're not acting as individuals but as trustees. Yeah. Uh, anyway, eventually we're sued. agreed to meet out of court, and part of the uh, out of uh, out of see if we can come up with an out of court settlement. And all the Anglican churches in Canada, they all lost everything. Uh, we were the only us and the other church. Uh, We, for a variety of reasons, which is sort of a bit more legal and and I'm I'm sure spiritual, we were able to come up with a bit of a solution out of court. But it would mean that we would walk away from our building uh, on the condition that the other church could keep their building. Hmm. And uh, so we had a 100% vote to do that, actually. And so on uh, the end of June 2011, um, actually what happened is we ended up renting where we currently are, the Ottawa Little Theatre, which is about a block away. Hmm. So we began our service that final Sunday in our building. Hmm. And we had a three song set close to the beginning. We sang the first song there, then we moved to a hymn because it's easier to sing a hymn while you're walking than the praise song. And uh, while the second one began, we processed out, walked outside (laughs) And then to the Ottawa Little Theater and then finish the service there. And then we had a couple of days actually to you know clean out the building and all that because yeah. the yeah. uh, 30th of June wasn't a Sunday. That, I think it was the 27th or something. So yeah. we cleaned yeah. out the building on the 30th and we've been in a sense homeless ever since. So
0: mm-hmm. George, I just you know you're sharing this history, you're sharing the experience and I hope everyone listening is connecting these experiences with the deep emotional pain and grief connected to the loss that this was uh, both personally and as a, and as a community. But you, you clearly discipled the people in your church to, to the way, the cost of discipleship to Jesus and it would sound like, also in a sense, also a work of the spirit in preparing people not to compromise but to remain faithful. Like yeah, that, that just stands out to me. There's this hundred percent. People are okay to to walk away. Like that's just it. See, it sounds miraculous.
1: Yeah, there's you know, I guess what I'd, I'd say to people is, um, you know, it, 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 I mean, this would be part of my argument for why exp- I, I have no idea whether you do expository preaching. You know, success is not put down there's other ways to accomplish the same thing but one of the the, the benefits of, of expository preaching when it's done very well is that you you touch on topics that culturally you would never pick mm-hmm. so i'm very canadian i i really am very canadian i don't like offending people mm-hmm. um that's like a, a weakness you know in a sense or a strength i guess i because i'm very canadian so you know but if you preach through uh you know like we've just preached through we're preaching through mark's gospel right now well at some point in time mark is going to talk about sexual sin Mm -hmm. and he's going to talk about marriage and divorce he's going to talk about hell he's going to talk about jesus being the only way right so what what uh, what the congregation needs to to have is they need to have that full teaching they need to have the sense that the pastor is under the word of god uh, Mm -hmm. that the understood like that the gospel is center the gospel is understood in its biblical way, and the Bible is understood in light of the gospel.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, uh, you know, when you talk about money, you, you talk about it biblically. When you talk about miracles, when you talk about hell, when you talk about Jesus being the only way, like, and then when you talk about sexuality, like, they have to have this sense that there's this pattern, this seamlessness that goes on, that you're going to be, you know, s- uh, sincere and and committed, you know, to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I think, in fact, what I would say is that churches that were known as evangelical or Anglo-Catholic or charismatic or traditionalist in the Anglican church, might I would be willing to bet money that if you actually sat and listened under their preaching, not just for a week, but for six months or a year, you would notice that over the course of the year, there is mainly teaching about Jesus as an example, not of him as being a sacrifice for your sin, that there, they don't mention he's the only way, that they don't mention hell ever, that they don't mention, um, things to do with sexuality in a biblical way, that you, in a sense, what happens is there's a veering away towards things which are culturally uh, more acceptable. Uh, one, of, one of the things I say to people is like, if you think of uh, Christian moral teaching, I, I'm here, I forget, it's going to be an audio thing. You think of a Venn diagram. A Venn diagram is two circles with um, that interlink. And so you have a circle, uh, you have, and so if you have the, the, the non-Christian worldview, or the Canadian cultural worldview is one circle, you have the biblical worldview, which is a second circle. Yeah. Uh, they overlap. Uh, in every culture, there's going to be an overlap between the two circles. It might be a very big overlap, like it would have been maybe in Canada in 1950, or it might be a small overlap, like it would have been under Nazi Germany. But there's always going to be an overlap. And if you call that part of the circle, which is the Canadian moral universe uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't intersect with Christianity, that's A. Uh, if you call the part of the circle for the Christian moral universe that doesn't intersect with the Canadian one, and that's the C area. And you have that little B area in the middle. And uh, one of the things which churches make, uh, can start to have trouble with is that they only talk about B. Mm. They never talk about moral issues that are in the C. And they never talk about why moral issues that are under the A are wrong, why they're mistaken. Uh, They they switch. So it would be like today, uh, Canada and the Bible both agree that racism is a terrible sin.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Like that's something which is just a a very easy thing that we both agree on.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And so you talk all the time about racism, but you don't talk about sexual morality. You don't talk about the trans movement. You don't talk about areas where the Christian moral universe and the secular Canadian moral universe are very, very different. And a church needs to talk about everything in its circle. Mm. And it needs to help, the, help the, the members of the congregation understand the Canadian circle. Right. Uh, because we approach racism in some ways similar to, to, to the average Canadian, but in other ways very different uh, because we have the doctrine of every human being being made in the image of God. Right. We have the fact that the Bible actually doesn't even have a category for race. Mm. That's a secular concept. It's not a biblical concept, mm-hmm. um, and so you know there's there's significant things which are different that you also have to say. But that what that just does it just what you know what we could actually say is that we actually have a very deep reason to understand why racism is wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, far deeper than our cultures. Yeah, yeah far,
1: far deeper than our cultures and tied to a far better story. But mm-hmm. um, so churches, yeah, it's it need to have the. That they need to pray that their pastor has the courage to winsomely and clearly try to, to uh, approach these subjects. And, and there's a second issue that we need to do, which is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting way off topic on you. Oh, this is, this
0: is helpful, George. I
1: appreciate it. So part of the problem that we have, this is, it's a, there's a very significant cultural moment for all churches in the evangelical, non-Anglican evangelical world is facing it right now. And that is that, Um, In a sense, what happened is the culture changed very radically in the 1960s with the counterculture. Hmm. Uh, But evangelical churches have found a way to thrive since the 1960s, by and large. They figured out ways to thrive uh, in terms of a certain type of model of serving the community, reaching out to those large number of Anglicans and Lutherans and Presbyterians, United and Roman Catholics that have a bit of a Christendom mindset but are confused about the gospel. And and evangelical churches have... have thrived they're able to connect with those types of people uh and they're uh, they can serve the community and they can be part of the community and they've and they've it's, it's been thriving for a lot of them mm-hmm. but the problem that we face now is that for most of our culture to hold a christian moral view means you're a bad guy
2: yeah
1: you it's not just neutral like you're actually bad like you're actually toxic
0: Yeah, as I heard someone say recently, we used to be weird. Now we are just, uh, we're, yeah, we're, we're opposed. We are, uh, yeah, the sickness of our culture. So it's no longer weird. We're now not tolerated in a sense. Or if we
1: we don't affirm the LGBTQ community in the way they would like to be communicated. If if we say, if we maintain a biblical sexual work, if we say that in fact, uh, this is just been speaking to Christians, how I would speak in my congregation and other circles. I would mm-hmm. actually I tell you what I would just uh, something which I would say. I would say that um, it must be very, 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 very hard to, to think if you if you're in a male body to feel that you're in the wrong body. Mm. That must be a very like that must be a very, very, very hard experience. And I have to confess I don't understand it, but I, I understand that it can happen and I understand it's very difficult.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the biblical teaching is that if you give your life to Christ and move towards wholeness, the wholeness is going to be towards you feeling at home in your body.
0: Right. And trusting God with that.
1: And trusting God with that. And but to say that, that in our culture it will get you canceled. And so we're actually in a very, very awkward cultural moment where Christians are going to have to choose to be the bad guys
2: Mm -hmm.
1: or take the risk of being viewed as the bad guy. That To realize that it doesn't matter how many school school bags we give out in September to poor kids. It doesn't matter how much money we give to feed the poor. It doesn't matter how many refugee families we sponsor. Mm -hmm. uh, That once that the our view on the trans issue and the lgbtq issue is a defeater mm. uh, it it just defeats it 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 overwhelms all that other good that you do by putting you in the category of a bad person mm. in uh, in in big segments of our culture and that's that's requiring a profound gut check i mean it continues to be a gut check for me and my congregation
2: mm-hmm. i can't
1: assume that what we decided to do in 2008 it, you know will always continue to be the case but it's a it's Great. a very impo- profound cultural moment and you and uh, for us as a as an evangelical movement uh, to try to be you know I mean it messes up our model
2: mm.
1: we don't like being thought of as the bad guys because we're all very Canadian yeah when I when I was uh, got a chance to speak in Angola uh, about three or four years ago for uh, for three weeks with SIM and uh, I was trying to organize uh, with a local Anglican church since I was an Anglican. And there was one Anglican church in the whole community that I would do a day-long or a morning-long workshop with them. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure if it was going to be two hours, three hours, four hours, or five hours. I didn't know if there was going to be a lunch or breaks or anything like that. Mm. And, and he didn't, we didn't organize the event until the, the day before. Mm. <laughs> wow. And I sent a message back to my congregation saying, The the Christians in Angola are very Angolan.
2: Hmm.
1: And again, Christians in Canada are very Canadian. (laughs) We just don't realize how Canadian we are uh, until we we come face to face with another culture who, of course, you can just organize a five-hour presentation or four-hour presentation the day before. Like, why not? Like, why are you so uptight about the future? (laughs) Why do you have control?
0: (laughs) Well, there, there's such there's such a reality there of how you know we are, we are so shaped as Canadians by our culture, but then how even as we operate as as Christ's body, um, that we can be so shaped as well by our culture. Um, in this series, we've explored, uh, and, and part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because of this series that we're doing on the seven churches of Revelation and uh, Christ's comprehensive warning. To Ephesus, he talks about the danger of losing our first love. In Smyrna, it's the fear of suffering. In Pergamum, it was doctrinal compromise. In Thyatira, it was moral compromise. In Sardis, there's spiritual deadness. In Philadelphia, a failure to hold on. And then lukewarmness in Laodicea. Um, I think you would agree, would you not, that each of those are our themes for what the church in Canada, those wanting to hold to sometimes I, I I wrestle with orthodoxy, but orthodoxy is still the title I think that is helpful, but I think it's a, it's a reliance upon trusting God's word as God's word that we can, that we can trust him. Um, How would you add to that? What would you've already shared some of the things you think that we need to be aware of as the, canadian church or those desiring to follow christ regardless but what, what are you seeing as areas uh, maybe in your own church or more broadly that we need to continue to lean into as far as being faithful and not compromising is that i realize i said a lot there
1: yeah just i mean one of the things i, I can't remember i think it's the second and the uh the sixth church right they they're the ones actually that uh they, they don't get the full bad news, right? There's an acknowledgement of their profound weakness, but they haven't compromised out of those seven. Yeah. I think, because I haven't looked at it in a while. Yeah, no,
0: you're, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, and Smyrna, it was more of a preparation of
1: yeah. being aware
0: that increased suffering is yeah. going
1: to come. Yeah. 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 Um, You know, uh, I don't entirely know. I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things I would just say for your listeners who are part of your church is that... um. Uh, you know, uh to, to be able to ask the question, is it I Lord? Am I finding these areas where I'm I'm drifting? Uh this, this I guess a second very quick thing, I'm just trying to get my mind around your question very good, uh, very big, is to um to avoid the political temptation mm. that, that can come to us. Mm. So what I mean is um there, you know, so the fact of the matter is, we have this very odd cultural moment that the cultural elites are definitely pushing one thing, but there's a sub, at least one subterranean movement going on in our culture. Mm. There's the whole Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson phenomenon. There's the whole uh, ben, is it Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire. Like there's this other, you know, Fox News gets way more viewers than both CNN and MSNBC together, right? I think it gets double the viewers of those other two elite things, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be very careful that we don't um, put our hope in politics. right? Uh, I'm not saying that we should be apolitical, uh, although churches, I think, have to be very careful. Um, you, You make a bit of a distinction between the ministry of the church as a church and the ministry of the church as its members. And you'd want to hope and pray that members of the church are op-ed writers, uh, are in politics, and they're making those types of things that they have to do. You know, uh, they're public health officials. They're doing what they have to do. But the church as a church has to be very careful. It doesn't get sucked into the political narrative. Yeah. Um, And end up just becoming a vehicle for one particular side of some of these cultural issues, which often can end up being a little bit more complicated anyway. So you need to, um, that, that when the church gathers as the church, there needs to be that you know, clear sense you're under God's word uh, in a way that welcomes sinners, that is always acknowledging. Like that text in 1 Corinthians, is it 1 Corinthians 6 or 7, where he makes a list of sins, including them are sexual sins. And at the end of, his, the end of it, he says, and such were some of you. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that it's not, if, when I talk about abortion, I try to make it clear uh, that it's not, or same-sex issues, it's not an us versus them issue, Mm -hmm. that there are people in the congregation who have probably had abortions or have contributed to abortions. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, You know, that it's not, there are people in the congregation who probably struggle with whether they are in the right body. There are people in the congregation who struggle with these different things. And then, of course, the main thing when you talk about the same-sex issues, right, is that the, the biblical teaching is faithfulness and, heterosexual monogamous marriage or sexual abs- abstinence and singleness mm-hmm. and in fact most sexual most of the sexual chaos in our culture comes from heterosexuals yeah yeah no, that's <laughs> not some words people, right. People, right that's uh you know it's the uh, you know so anyway you, you need to try to maintain that that we're sinners that are being redeemed uh it's not us versus them yeah did I wander off from what you were asking, I don't know. I might have, so I'm sorry if I did.
0: No, no, that is so helpful, George, because it is. Um, I heard I heard someone say recently, what we do oftentimes the 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 example in our culture is righteous posturing or self righteous posturing that we can quickly point the finger and yeah. and we aren't examining the hypocrisy in our own lives, and so I think that's a really helpful way, even to end our conversation. Because what we've talked about today, while it's been an experience that you've gone through and a recognition for yourselves and your congregation that you could not compromise, you needed to remain faithful. You did this out of faithfulness to Christ, but you still recognize that you're continuing as people saved by grace, dependent upon Christ's grace, sitting under his word, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so you still very much pray and grieve that some of these changes that were obviously happening it's not you know i just wouldn't want anyone to be confused to begin you know to come from this and begin just pointing the fingers at you know liberal theology theology and and sort of take believe in, in a sort of a moral self-righteousness i am better than you uh, but instead to sit further under god's grace as he leads us um anything sort of jump out at you of what i've just said and
1: Oh, I, I agree with you. I, I just, if I had one final word that I could say to people, it would just be this, as uh, they're all, as, as you mentioned uh, earlier, there's, there's lots of churches starting to face this issue. Mm. On this issue of same-sex issues and sexuality, the, the, the problem for Christians is this. Every time it's mentioned in the Bible, uh, same-sex issues, it's seen as a sin. There's no exceptions. Mm. And then if you take a step back and look at just sexuality in general, you see that um, there is a very consistent biblical message on sexuality, which is faithfulness and heterosexual marriage or sexual absence and singleness. Mm-hmm. And then if you take a step back and look at it in terms of biblical anthropology and doctrine of creation and all of that type of stuff, there's a very consistent biblical message.
2: Mm-hmm. And then if
1: you take an even further step back and look at the level of symbolism in the Bible, about the, 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 how God is protected. Uh, how Jesus is, is, is described, how the church is described, the, je- the sexes that are used in all of these things, what you see is that the, the issue of the Bible is, is, is unbelievably heterosexist. Mm. It is a deep teaching of Scripture. It's both the surface cre- teaching of Scripture and it's the deep teaching of Scripture. And it's connected to the, all of the other doctrines of salvation, of, the, of what human beings are. And so it's not a third-order issue. It's not something we can differ on it's um it is in fact to take that step is to take a step away from the bible at at ever at the particular level the more general level the, and the deepest level possible you are you're making a very significant step away and i i know that some people don't realize that when they take that step they don't they realize they've they've taken such a big step and i just hope that your hearers understand yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to finish with that i'm sorry <laughs> but it's 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 i i wish i i'm very canadian i wish I wish I could just say it's all fine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would, in my flesh, that's what I would say. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is, it's a, it is in fact deeply, deeply, deeply woven into all of the scripture. Images of Christ, of, of the second, of the, of, of the new heaven and the new earth, like it's, it's deeply woven into it, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's the bride who comes down. Mm-hmm. jesus is the bridegroom like it's yeah. you can't walk away from this doctrine without having huge doctrinal issues yeah so pray that we can be clear about it in a way which is self-effacing mm-hmm. acknowledges our sin and yeah. our own brokenness um every single person in the congregation is sexually broken
2: yeah
1: it includes the soccer stay-at-home moms who, who teach their school their kids They're homeschooling moms. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Everybody's sexually broken in different ways. Uh, And we all need the gospel. And we all need the good medicine of Christ's teaching Mm -hmm. on how to be sick, sexually whole, and flourish. Mm -hmm. We all need it. Mm -hmm. It's huge.
0: Yeah. I just want to say thank you, George. Something else stood out from our conversation. You said uh, clarity is the Christian's friend. Ambiguity is the devil's. And so I just want to thank you for your word uh, to our church and those who will listen to this. And thank you for the path that you've walked and the faithfulness by which you've walked it in the face of deeply hurtful consequences at different points, yet faithfulness to Christ above all else. And he is honored and glorified. And I'm sure he has been your peace in the midst of situations
1: where there's felt like there's been very little peace. Good to talk to you, Matt. Yeah, it's all worth it.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much, George. What a
1: blessing. Talk again sometime. God bless.